Welcome to the Addiction Connection, hosted by my grandpa, Dr. Kurt Devine, and Dr. Heather Bell. Heather. Dr. Heather Bell, my two favorite addiction doctors. I hope you enjoy the show. We are back, and it's my turn to say we are. Clearly, you probably didn't even get the beginning part of the we. Probably like didn't even tape. Oh, I'm just kidding. I'll start over. Uh, so today, we're, we're this is going to be hopefully a relatively short little episode that you could listen to when you're quickly going to the gas station just to get milk. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> like quick, just Who boom. Says that. Nope. Okay, I'm like <laughs> nobody. This is part four. Yeah, this is the the end of perioperative stuff. I don't even I think. think I can make this into two. And nope. I'm pretty good at making things. Yeah. Yeah, well, you're good at making things take longer than they should. <laughs> you just talk and talk. I'm loquacious. 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 Loquacious, which is in Sam Quinone's book. It was actually a word in there that I knew from high school. The Love one the word. word. The one word in the book Dreamland, Kurt knew. Yeah. Mr. Carter always said it. Not Jimmy. Nope. Not Jimmy. Okay. So today we're going to, there's two different parts. We're going to break this one episode into, I promise. The first part is what do you do about patients who are having surgery or end up in a hospital who have a use disorder that just literally hasn't been diagnosed? So let's start there. Well, and I think it's important to understand that people can be on lots of different things when they're admitted to the hospital and common things are common as they say. So looking at like smoking, you know, 30% of patients that whip into your hospital are smoking. That says 36 Yeah, it's like that. Those numbers are so small. Uh, So it's more than a third. (laughs) This just proves I'm still way younger. Yeah, young. Yes. Uh, And, you know, of course, 20% use alcohol hazardously, if if not more. (laughs) (laughs) I had to do it. (laughs) It's the first time we've used that. Uh, And, again, I think that we really underestimate, I think, generally, how many people come in and have issues with alcohol after an admission. Oh, my. Well, we talked about it in the... The alcohol, ep- the, op- the episode on older adults and alcohol. Yes. And I think that was so stunning during yeah. that research period that you did all of that. Just to hear that, like well, how patients, I, I just want to point this out again, because I still think it's stunning to me is that older adults come into the hospital with alcohol related problems more than they come in for like congestive heart failure yeah for more for cardiac issues right it's just crazy anyway especially when you think of falls and all this other stuff so don't ever forget alcohol because someone in the icu for something else or who's septic they and they seem delirious it might actually just be alcohol withdrawal on top of it and that could be very bad if you miss it if you miss it did you just repeat what i said Okay, yeah, so because it's 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 literally one of the most important things, probably the only most impo- only important thing you've ever taught me. Oh, <laughs> so and of course the percentage of patients with OUD. To be honest, when I was reading that, I thought it said placenta percentage of placentas. <laughs> well, you with forgot OUD. to say that in general, illicit substances. Eight percent of patients presenting to the hospital use some type of illicit substance, which most commonly would be meth and and opioids. Right. So yeah. Marijuana, we're not really putting into these categories, but yeah. anyway, so. So nobody really knows what percentage of patients show up with, with an actual OUD who end up needing surgery, right? There's not been great data. 
Um, and often it's when they go into withdrawal, just like with alcohol, that you kind of go, Oop, I think we got something we need to address. But what percentage of hospital and or surgical providers who have a patient needing surgery in the hospital would recognize the opioid withdrawal. Yeah, That's if the patient if, didn't say anything. Right, if this is not a known thing and all of a sudden they're getting sick, are they thinking it's an infection? Are they going to have all these unnecessary tests and procedures? Yeah, and we've seen that in the ER where they come in and they, they get diagnosed with gastroenteritis, you know. And so, yeah, often the patient's not going to tell you. So you really need to do that non-judgmental interview. Well, yeah, and yeah, I don't want to yeah, say that. Okay. So, but patients untreated pain so patients who have a surgery but in conjunction with increased risk and they have less favorable outcomes so patients who are have a use disorder opioid use disorder specifically let's talk about them they might need higher doses of pain pain meds especially if they have an opioid use disorder that nobody knows about well if they leave the hospital with pain because they're not being treated appropriately they tend to leave the hospital sooner um, and they have worsening of all their other medical conditions because they're getting out of the hospital too fast. They tend to be readmitted faster and sooner and more often. And mm. then they tend to have overdoses higher. Yeah. I think the thing, you know, that we talk about often is recognition of opioid use disorder. And so I think when we look at hospitalized patients, it's recognizing that if we're giving somebody opioids for their pain and it's not covering it, and all of a sudden some of their other symptoms go away right? Suddenly they don't have diarrhea. They're not sweating. They're not irritable. We have to think of that. We have to talk to them and before we send them out. Well, and with that, you know, it's, I think this is where it's kind of that, that downward spiral is if it's not recognized and the patient has such a high tolerance. So like you said, their symptoms go away, their withdrawal symptoms go away, but their pain is still not treated. And then the patient's like, I'm still having pain. I'm still having pain. The amount of like, oh, you're just pill seeking or, oh, you're, you know, all the stigma and judgment comes in. That doesn't create a good bedside manner or bedside relationship. No patient provider nurse relationship is going to go well from there. And it's going to spiral further. So in a perfect world, what we're doing is recognizing that in the hospital and addressing, addressing it and starting on MOUD. Correct. And and that's really something that we're working on. I think it's very important that hospitals are very comfortable with that. And this, yes. So, and if they're surgical, then you kind of got to think of all of it together. But there's a f- couple studies, this, this big one, which seems like so earth shattering, but not really. This is back from, there's two studies, 2014 and 2015, both in, one's in JAMA, one's in general internal med, um, that... The bottom line is MOUD, so buprenorphine products typically can't do methadone, can't start methadone in a hospital, um, can be started safely during hospitalization. So even if a patient's post-op, it is okay to consider that as their initial med to treat their withdrawal and their opioid use disorder. And remember, I mean, I think the important thing always to consider is that when you start on uh, something like you know buprenorphine in the hospital, in the ER, you're basically saving lives. And there there are studies here that uh, that we could give you that have... Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. No, you're uh, saving lives. It's yeah. not, not you. No. Oh, but I think that it's important to remember that, you know, it increases survival. All-cause mortality. People on Suboxone live longer. Buprenorphine, sorry. And the next most important thing to just understanding that you're saving lives is to 
to take that extra step, whether it's a, a case manager at the hospital, a social worker at the hospital. I'm not saying they all have to go directly to treatment from hospitalization. That is like the bottom thing on my list of what has to be done first is getting them on meds, but connecting them with a provider outside of the hospital. That might not be their primary care provider. You know, you get released from the hospital. Oh, see your doctor within five days or 10 days or, you know, especially ERs. No. Taking that extra step and helping connect them with a provider to do their buprenorphine. Yeah. And when I say connecting them, I mean, get them an appointment within a few days. Yeah. And, you know, considering, you know, have to consider who's going to take care of that med when you leave the hospital. If you're not wavered in the hospital, which I think every hospital physician should be wavered, provider should be wavered. Yeah. You know, I don't you've got to have that connection. I don't think you should need a waiver, but that's even one step further. <laughs> But I think we've both seen patients, we've given called in the past where they say, I'm discharging this patient. Can they come over and see you now? And the answer right. is always yes. But the worst thing you could do is like start it and what you should do, but then send them home with nothing. Yeah. They're going to relapse. I don't think, again, I think everybody needs a waiver because if you have a brand new diabetic who has DKA and it's an insulin dependent, you're not allowed to send them home without insulin. I mean, you'd be sued so fast. Yeah. Why can you send them out without buprenorphine? It's like, I know you're going to eat cake anyway, so why even try? Hey, that's a good Is that one. good? That was good. So let's talk about buprenorphine. A couple little other tidbits before we end this very short, almost oh, short. Oh, you're down there already? I am. No, we, we didn't go through the systematic review here. Oh, I'm not very systematic. <laughs> so there's nine studies, a total of 615 patients in this one review um, from the Journal of Anesthesiology. This was just 2020, so this is not that long ago. But this actually noted that if you do transdermal buprenorphine six to 48 hours before a surgery, so a person who has an opioid use disorder, you're actually starting the buprenorphine preoperatively. So it kind of goes against everything that was happening in the past with people on buprenorphine, like the last episode and people getting it stopped. But starting the buprenorphine, the transdermal approach, whoops, um, preoperatively, and then maintained for at least a week after, they had lower or similar post-op pain scores. Not that we do the number score anymore anyway. They had less post-operative analgesic consumption, and they had higher patient satisfaction, and they had no increase in side effects. Yeah, and I think we talked about part of that before in one of the other episodes where it's really important to understand that patients, there are studies that show that patients that have their buprenorphine stopped just before their surgeries actually have very difficult pain control and, and worse scores. Correct. So, so really this, any way that you either continue or start it, uh, overall you can do better. And disclaimer, my approach would not be to start a transdermal product pre-op. I would do just the plain old Typical buprenorphine or buprenorphine slash naloxone. That's just my thing. That was just that study, though. So anyway. Yeah. So we, let's talk about buprenorphine as a post-operative pain treatment. How good is it, Dr. Bell? So this came up because, yeah, it's, this is kind of, there's two ways of looking at this. Is, is buprenorphine, should we just go there first line? Instead of sending them home with the hydrocodones or the oxycodones or whatever other pain management you typically do, should you just do buprenorphine right off the bat? The other way of looking at it is if you have a patient who's in recovery or a patient who is at super duper high risk of developing an opioid use disorder, you know, maybe they had an alcohol use disorder or a different use disorder and they want a safer alternative, like in their minds, a safer alternative in our minds, a safer alternative. Can you use buprenorphine? So there is very little information in the research about yeah. this now. 
but I feel like I'm a cowboy now. But there's you know I do it one all the time. fairly big review of the 28 randomized controlled studies there's been right. Yeah, 2,200 patients. This was actually four years ago too, but yeah. it was the British Journal of Anesthesia. And basically, their conclusion, not hunch. Hunch is different. <laughs> Dude, that's my new favorite thing. Can I go on a little tangent? Slight tangent, but make it quick. We're at 11 okay. minutes. Y'all know we met Sam Quinones, who's like one of my favorite humans. And he made this comment. He said, it's not a hunch. Because if you're like really sure of it, it's a conclusion. It's more definitive. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, the conclusion they got without hunching it here was... <laughs> hunching uh, a word. Yeah, oh my gosh. Is that there really was no difference in the pain or respiratory depression when patients were compared buprenorphine and morphine so as the primary acute pain management Correct. medication so yeah i didn't say that very well no you didn't that's why i wanted to just yeah can i start over or no we don't need to okay and and then sorry yeah another study that was actually done even earlier than that so this is just mind-boggling to me that there's nothing a lot more recent and not a lot out there there's like three studies this one was done in 2012 that sublingual buprenorphine is as effective as morphine for the treatment of acute pain so it's like the one we said first you said first kind of verified it yeah and so you know you can do it and i think that often patients perception is it's not going to be as good uh, from what they've heard and so i i often have this conversation i say you know be a positive positive person think that this is going to work yeah, positive. Try to be positive. optimistic uh, that'd be a better word it would be okay so the most recent study was in 2020 and it basically also said the same thing that buprenorphine tablets so the sublingual tablets or buprenorphine iv which i'm sure most places don't have that but you can be npo and still use the buprenorphine tablets or the films by the way um but using the buprenorphine product for post-op pain in high-risk individuals is recommended. Now, there was two different views on this, whether it was transdermal or the the sublingual better. And the two articles kind of go back and forth. The the one paper said, well, chronic is probably better than for chronic, the transdermal is probably better and acute would be the sublingual, which I, t- I guess I tend to agree with because, you know, when you're using the sublingual product, you get that really that acute pain that analgesic property is about that four hour window. So the more do- frequent dosing of it would make more sense to me. Um, but this came up, which is why we researched it. Patient who had a knee replacement, who really did not refuse, adamantly refused to use any type of opioid product. And knowing that this is one of the most difficult surgeries, most painful surgeries, um, we needed to do something. And so I, yeah, buprenorphine tablets, two milligram tablets I used. And it was kind of like as needed. I didn't put a schedule on it because this individual is pretty mentally focused on this, didn't want a schedule. In two weeks after a knee replacement, used five of the tablets. That's not bad. That's not bad. That's Navy SEAL level there. <laughs> we'll be sure to tell the patient you said that. Yeah. Direct them to this episode. Yeah. The one thing I didn't do, learning, I'm going to share my learning, is remember that if you're using this or any opioid for that matter in a person who's at that moment opioid naive, do not forget the stool softener. Yeah. That was the one, that was more uncomfortable, the constipation results I gave them. This wasn't as short as I thought it would be. So 
But it's it's a huge, and this I think is going to be more of the up and coming top topic here. Is well, this in does, our world, this does conclude the perioperative considerations. Yes, and use of buprenorphine with surgeries. Yes. So if anyone wants any more information or has questions or any advice from us, slow clap, <laughs> slow clap. Um, <laughs> please. Email us at the Addiction Connection Podcast at Gmail. Um, obviously, we're on Spotify and Spotify. Spotify it just sounds so fancy. Yeah. And with that, I had to use the door close. <laughs> we're closing the door on perioperative. And happy that Thanksgiving, was really, everyone. That, that was, was so good, wasn't that was it? Was cheesy. It was so cheesy and good. All right, let's give it away. Let's get out of this here. This podcast is brought to you by Ars Longa Media. Produced by Dr. Patrick Beeman and music by Battle Eggs on Spotify. Mm-hmm.